Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Your book, The Journey to the Mayflower, God's Outlaws and the Invention of Freedom is published by Hodder. You write about it also in this week's Church Times. I mean, obviously the big hook for this is it's coming up to the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower setting sail. But you're doing something a bit different with this. This isn't simply a history of the Mayflower. That's right. In fact, it's not even a history of the Mayflower, really, because my book starts where most other books on the subject... Sorry, my book stops where other books start. I'm not really that interested in the journey and then what happens to the pilgrims when they arrive in North America. Uh, how, uh, you know, that's a very important and interesting story, but other people are going to be telling that, I think. My story is about the illegal underground church, the religious movement in the time of Elizabeth I and James I, their experience of uh, secret worship and of persecution and of exile and the reasons why they felt the need to leave the country and go and seek a new life elsewhere. So it's kind of prehistory to the Mayflower. Yes, that's right. Yes, it's uh, it's the story of the English movement that then led people to America rather than a story of American beginnings. And how did you become interested in, in this area? I mean, I know you're a historian, but why this specifically? Well, it's a slightly wandering path, really, but I did a a degree in theology at London Bible College, as it then was, now London School of Theology. And I did quite well in church history. My tutor persuaded me to stay on and do a PhD in church history. And I was quite interested in the the English Revolution um, and that period of history. And Mike suggested that that had been quite thoroughly dug over already. And if I was interested in that kind of area, then maybe going back a bit and looking at the separatist movement. Uh, so that is what I looked at, and I found them very interesting. I found their thinking interesting and the the way that their thinking from Puritanism then kind of drifted into separatism and then kind of one logical thing following another drift into other areas such as founding the first Baptist churches. So there was that kind of theological background that I had on the movement. Um, And then with the anniversary of the Mayflower coming up in 2020, I did this research years and years ago, but if I was ever going to use it for anything of any uh, any outward value. It's very interesting for me to do it, but I never published it or anything. If I was going to uh, save any of those uh, discoveries from oblivion, then maybe the anniversary would be a time to write a more general readership story of the movement in which I could then drop one or two of those uh, interesting theological discoveries that I made in the research. Let's talk a bit about that movement. Where, where do you start? How far back before mm. the Mayflower set sail? Well, they trace their origins, and I do the same, um, to the time of Queen Mary I and her restoration of Catholicism, her attempt to burn Protestantism by rounding up Protestants and having them burn to life. And during that period, the Protestants in general, some of them left the country, some of them capitulated, but others went underground and formed these underground churches, these secret um, meetings in taverns and in fields. Uh, And that was a quite a broad-based Protestant church, and it survived until the end of Mary's reign. And then, of course, Elizabeth became queen and had a, a 
Protestant Reformation, but Elizabeth's Protestant Reformation wasn't Protestant enough for a lot of Protestants, and so therefore you have the whole Puritan movement to uh, to have a more thorough Protestant Reformation of the Church and get rid of the the vestments that Elizabeth was keen to to hold on to, um, and so. My separatists were really the radical fringe of that Puritan movement. They were so outraged that these robes were still being worn by ministers in the Church of England that, like other Puritans, they protested and they campaigned to get rid of them. But unlike other Puritans, when they lost that battle, they couldn't remain in the Church of England with these things going on. And so they remembered the underground Church of Mary's time and said, even though that was a makeshift church, that's more like what we think of as a true church than what's happening in the parishes today. So they revived the underground Church of Mary's time to hold out, not against the fires of Rome this time, but against the Church of England. And what were these underground churches like? Were they um, quite varied? There was a network throughout London and um, and in later years through other parts of the country as well. And we don't know huge amount about what went on in the churches, uh, but it seems that they were quite willing to experiment with radical thinking and, and radical ways of doing church. And so... Uh, although there was a Presbyterian movement in the Church of England to get rid of bishops and have a more egalitarian structure, they experimented with the idea to put in the words of Robert Brown, one of their later leaders, that the voice of God is the voice of the people is the voice of God. And so therefore they became more democratic structured and, and gave decision making to all the people. Um, so as a different understanding of the structure of the church. And they seem to me to have been quite charismatic in their worship. That wasn't something that they um, made much of a point about. But if you hear the odd description of their services, talk about people groaning and, and, and moaning, people calling out, uh, one person will pray and, and, and everyone else will murmur and groan. So, you know, quite interesting in that respect. They were also egalitarian in the sense that they allowed anyone to preach not just ordained ministers often they didn't have ordained ministers and um, you were allowed to interrupt the sermon with questions uh, and have a more open discussion um, anyone who wanted to could lead prayers they completely rejected liturgy they called that babbling in the lord's sight so no written liturgy it was much more spontaneous and free form so no Eucharist, no. Well, they um, they were quite content uh, not having ministers for quite a while, but um, they also believed that as the church they had the right to ordain ministers. So when eventually they did, their the ministers would then uh, have the Eucharist. But um, the, they were uh, absolutely set on taking not one step further than the Bible tells us. So uh, that, uh, as other aspects of the church, was stripped back. So the Eucharist service was really the minister saying uh, one sentence from Paul's uh, description of the service about the body of Jesus given for you, um, and then they would have the bread and wine. So it was uh, very basic, stripped back.
no sense of a, a priest presiding that was no the, yes the word priest they absolutely hated yes um but they did think that you needed to be ordained in order to um to baptize or to deliver the sacraments although later generations of the movement went more radical on that and allowed anyone to baptize and in the authorities clocked on to what was happening mm. was there um, with their consequences? Yes, the, the movement was completely illegal. Um, and then when they decided that they were separatists condemning the Church of England, not just having separate services, but condemning the Church of England as a false church, obviously that made it worse. When they were started preaching democracy and freedom of religion, that was still more controversial. So yes, their services were raided and members were arrested. They were put in prison. In the early days, uh, under the rule in London of Bishop Edmund Grindle, Elizabeth's first Bishop of London, who was in charge of their arrests, he really, really didn't want to be persecuting anyone. So he would keep them in prison for a little bit and interview them and then let them go and arrest them again, then let them go again, because he wanted to show them that the Church of England was their friend and they should all get back on board. But that didn't convince them. And so in the end, the separatists were kept in prison until they died, which didn't take long in Elizabethan prisons because they were outlandishly unhealthy places. And um, then in in later generations, under um, Archbishop Whitgift in the uh, 1580s, the, he positively wanted to destroy the separatist movement, that earlier kind of avuncular attitude uh, had gone. And so he managed to get laws passed condemning the movement as a felony, and he it was directly responsible for the execution of three of its leading members. Um, could you talk about Robert Brown? And you talk about the Brownists. He, yes. he came along. When did he come along? So he, he led the second wave of the movement at the very end of the 1570s, going into the 1580s. He was based in East Anglia. Uh, he founded churches in Bury St Edmunds, we think, and in Norwich. Um, and he then took his churches out of the country into exile in the Netherlands, and then in Scotland. Um, his great contribution, I think, was two new ideas which were hugely controversial and really hadn't seen the light of day in England before in quite the same way. Uh, the first, as I mentioned earlier, was the idea that the church is a democracy. The, the Elizabethan Church of England was a, a monarchy, the Queen ruling through her Lord Bishops, and the Presbyterian movement wanted to give that power to the ministers and Robert Brown said uh, that the voice of the people is the voice of God and every decision made in the church should be made through the consensus and the majority of the people though they should be advised by leading people like him um, and his other great idea was that religion should be free. There should be freedom of religion, and the church is not an entire church state, not a whole nation united in one set of teachings and one set of religious practices, but the church is a voluntary community that people should be free to join and free to leave. 
that the church had no business making laws for people to obey and the state had no business making laws interfering in religion. There should be complete separation between church and state. Um, those both ideas proving very influential um, both in this country and when the Mayflower pilgrims took them to North America as well. So what became of Robert Brown? Mm. Well, he was uh, one of the thinkers of the movement, but he was not one of the heroes of the movement. There were a lot of people who faced death and were tortured and were killed for their faith. He, um, he was imprisoned numerous times, um, in and out of prison, uh, and he took his... His, his church to the Netherlands and led it over there. But there were serious splits in the church. And this was a recurrent theme throughout the history of the movement. Whenever they got their freedom from prison and went and, and set up their own church, being able to do what they liked, they then found that they didn't just disagree with the Church of England, they disagreed with each other and split endlessly. So that happened in the Netherlands and the movement kind of broke up. But... Um, Brown took his remnant of the movement um, and he couldn't go back to England because, um, again, this is a recurrent theme of the movement. They believed God called them onwards and never backwards. So they had been called out of the Egypt of England across the sea into the Netherlands. Um, but if they went back to England, they would be like the children of Israel who wanted to go back from the wilderness to Egypt. So there was no going back. So they looked around, where else is there a reformed church that we could uh, go and visit their country instead? So they went to Scotland, but they got on every bit as badly with the Kirk as they had with the Church of England. There was no question of the Kirk tolerating separatism in Scotland, and they were disgusted by some of the... Um, the remnants of Catholicism they still saw in the Church of Scotland. So uh, that ended with prison time as well. They left Scotland and they gave up and they came home and the movement fell apart. This was in the about 85, 84, 85, I think. The movement was then re revived in the next generation by new leaders who tried to distance themselves as much as possible from Brown because he had been a failure. Um, he, Brown actually made his peace with the Church of England. He signed a submission to the Archbishop of Canterbury, um, which he tried to keep quiet about, but he did. And he eventually became the rector of Thorpe Church in Northamptonshire, I think it is. So... You know, he was then obviously completely rejected by the separatist movement uh, as a backslider. Um, but he was a slightly dodgy backslider because even as the rector of Thorpe A Church, he continued, it seems, to lead um, illegal um, private meetings in the parish. But he also seems to have written tracts against the Brownist movement, as it was now being called, his, you know, his successes in the movement. He was, you know, thoroughly critical of them and their movement. Um, so it was called the Brownist movement after him. Um, understandably, the later generations hated the name, and whenever anyone called them Brownists, they were deeply offended. And, you know... So, something their opponents yeah. called them. Their That's right, yes. Yes. Uh, of course, and the fact that they protested against it so much made the name stick yes. all the more. But they called mm. themselves separatists? Was that, um, was that they later? didn't even like the name separatist. That was also another contemporary name and they protested against that as well. They wanted to be called the true church but that didn't stick. They, you know, they were quite happy with the churches of the separation so that might have been a compromise but that right. didn't stick either really. No.
and then those who boarded the Mayflower, the Pilgrims, yes. um, that was in 1620. So that's you're into um, the reign of King James. That's right, James I of England. And I mean, does your book cover any of those sort of events that happened around that time in the lead up? Yes, yes, it does. So um, this was yet another wave of the separatist movement, which was triggered off really when James became king and his, uh, one of his first appointments was to make Richard Bancroft Archbishop of Canterbury. And he, like Whitgift, was an arch nemesis of the Puritan movement in general and the separatist movement in particular. And so he immediately, as soon as he, actually before he came into power as Archbishop, he launched a campaign against Puritans, insisting that they signed subscriptions, saying that they approved of everything in the prayer book, that kind of thing. And that led to a a huge wave of um, ministers being, of losing their jobs in the church. And so uh, a good number of those, as it happened uh, back in the early days of Puritanism, uh, having lost their job as ministers, kept their role as ministers, but kind of took their people with them and founded these illegal underground churches, uh, brownest churches, as they were now called. And once again, they were imprisoned and they were put in stocks and banished from their homes, that kind of thing. Um, And so there was already a thriving brownist church in the Netherlands from an earlier generation. And so this new group, which uh, a lot of them were based in the north of England, Nottinghamshire, Lincolnshire, um, they went over and founded new churches, kind of neighbouring the brownest churches in the Netherlands. Um, and then they had all kinds of arguments uh, about all kinds of things, and they split up and some went off into to other cities. And it was a group that went off to Leiden uh, under John Robinson, who they were, they ended up being perhaps the most um, moderate, if you could use that word, of the, the radical Puritans, uh, this brownness, and they were more conciliatory to mainstream Puritans who came over, and they were the ones who uh, sailed on the Mayflower to North America. This was actually the fourth attempt by brownists to go to North America, so it wasn't a new idea, but the previous three attempts had failed, and it was John Robinson's church who succeeded in negotiating with the the Virginia company to go over to Virginia but obviously they missed and ended up in in New England they also had a thriving printing industry the this church which got them in a great deal of trouble and it almost wrecked the whole thing when they were found out to have been printing these books against James I but they just about got away with it um and they hired their ship, they bought their ship, um, and they made their supplies and they made it off out of the country and the rest is history. And we see all those ideas, I guess, in the, the founding fathers of separation of church and state, mm. freedom of conscience. So those were the ideas they took with them. Yes, that's right. Although, so Plymouth Plantation, which was founded by the Pilgrim Fathers, it was um, it then had neighbours from the Massachusetts Bay Corporation. They were not separatists. They were Puritans who um, didn't like the way the Church of England was going, didn't want to separate at home, but 
supposedly avowing complete loyalty to the Church of England, they left England so they didn't have to follow the rules of the Church of England and founded their Puritan uh, colonies there. Uh, and they were rather more successful commercially and numerically and economically than the, the separatists in, in Plymouth Plantation. And they weren't interested at all, the Puritans, in, um, in religious freedom. They wanted to impose their Puritan idea of the church on everyone. And that ended up having probably, at least in the short term, rather more influence on the way that these settlements were run in North America. And there wasn't much of an ideal of freedom. Although, as a kind of counterculture, that idea was kept alive. And so you had... Um, Rhode Island being then formed as a kind of breakaway state where there was freedom. And uh, what even the Puritans who didn't believe in freedom of religion then found was that you can f form a settlement in the wilderness which um, in which you insist that everyone worships in the same way. But if anyone really doesn't agree with you, they can just pack their bags and go over the hillside and form another settlement beyond the horizon. So, uh, you know, there was de facto freedom of religion, even among those who um, didn't believe in it. So in the end, freedom of religion won. Are there any aspects of the sepsis movement that remind you of um, any parts of the Church of England? <laughs> well, it's... Funny, I suppose, that um, the, you know, Brown's idea of um, freedom of religion, that the church should be a voluntary community, was absolutely antithetical to everything that the Church of England stood for at the time. And everybody knew that the church must be a whole state bound together in one set of teachings and one set of practices. But, um, you know, Brown's won, really, has he? He might not have won the argument in a debate, but we've all come around, really, to that idea that the church, whatever it might have been, uh, the Church of England is now a group of voluntary communities, and we've still got the, the parish structure. It's still uh, it's got that relationship uh, that continues to the state. It's still got a relationship to the land, but it is in effect, and I think most people in the Church of England are probably quite happy about this, that it has no ambitions to impose its teachings and its practices on the whole of the country. It's quite happy to be the religious meeting for those who want to come and for those who want to go to other religious meetings to go and do their own thing and for those to lie in to do their own thing. So, you know, we seem to have come round to Brown's way of thinking in some ways, um, even if we are rather happier with the vestments, and the ornate robes of the priest than the Puritans would have been. I was also just wondering about um, some movements in the Anglican Communion in the Church of England today which are seeking to bring the church quote, you know, back mm. to the Bible to be biblically faithful. Yes. Are there any echoes there with the separatists? Yes, well, 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 one thing that strikes me about looking at the, the separatist movement is that back then um, people really did assume that there was one clear reading of Scripture. And if we all got around the Bible and read it carefully, the plain meaning of Scripture would come out to all of us. And so when there are disagreements on what the Scripture is saying, it must be because you, um, you're a bad person uh, and you're, you, know, you, you have a bad conscience and so therefore you're trying to read the Bible wrongly. Um, and if you just 
tried harder and if you just really wanted to know the truth we would all agree on it um and 400 years later it is utterly utterly obvious um from the whole of that history every single year of that history people have read the bible uh differently to each other and have not been able to convince each other and so we've all gone away with completely different understandings of what the bible is telling us so any sane reading of the bible it seems to me um has to accept that I have my reading of the Bible and you have your reading of the Bible and the Bible is is something that people are always going to find different things in and are always going to come away with different interpretations of. So uh, any movement which tries to say this is the one thing that the Bible says and we all have to agree with it, otherwise we are disagreeing with the Bible, um, it's hopeless. You know, history has shown that you can um, place very great store in the Bible, you can try very hard to hear what the Bible is saying, and you can try very hard to remain true to the Bible, but you also have to accept that other people doing the same thing are going to come to different conclusions, and we have to live with that. The Journey to the Mayflower, God's Outlaws and the Invention of Freedom by Stephen Tompkins is published by Hodder at £20 and is on special offer at the Church of Times bookshop for £18. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.